0: Hello, and welcome to the second installment of the American Thoracic Society Women in Critical Care podcast. I'm Dr. Dina Bates, Assistant Clinical Professor at UC San Diego Health. I'm again joined today by Dr. Janice Liebler, Professor of Clinical Medicine and Medical Director of the Medical ICU at USC, as well as Dr. Abby Lara, Associate Professor of Medicine, Fellowship Program Director, and Medical Director of the Medical Surgical Progressive Care Unit at University of Colorado, Denver. In the second installment, we will continue the conversation we started last time regarding several important issues for women in critical care medicine, whether that be academic or not academic. As I mentioned before, the purpose of this uh, podcast is for junior women, but we really hope that women of all levels and even many men will find these issues uh, helpful and important to hear about. As this is a continuation of the first podcast, I want to encourage our listeners to check out the first installment if you haven't already done so. As information that you will hear today and in the future podcasts may refer back to previous answers and previous questions. With that, I'm going to get right back to the questions to Jan and Abby. So, along the lines of, uh, so Jan, this question is for you. Along the lines of my last question to Abby, um, or to both of you, really. Abby mentioned something earlier on in her answer about being able to advocate for yourself but really feeling empowered and confident to talk about your accomplishments without feeling like you're bragging. And that's something that I know I have trouble with. And and speaking to my my, uh, junior colleagues, I know that that's a common feeling amongst junior women. How would you advise a woman advocate for herself in negotiations and other types of meetings to really use her accomplishments to her advantage without fear of being perceived as bragging?
1: Fortunately, I have a recommendation for a book because this is not an area that I uh, have any particular skill or uh, knowledge about. The book is called "Brag: The Art of Tooting Your Own Horn Without Blowing It. It's by Peggy Klaus, K-L-A-U-S. I heard uh, Peggy speak one time um, and uh she was a, is a strong advocate for women in the workplace um, getting um, and, and their ability to communicate in effective ways. And so her book actually addresses this topic way better than I could. Basically, what she tells people to do is to be prepared. Have something that you want to express to others that you've accomplished. Maybe you just got that... Paper into the New England Journal, and you just want like everybody to know about it. I certainly would. Um, and um, how do you do that without looking like you're uh, like you're bragging? And so how part of it is that you prepare in advance how you're going to tell that to people. And so if the you know then you look for opportunities to be able to share that. I can think of a sneaky way to do that, and I don't know if this will work. Um, as I said, I'm not an expert in this, but if somebody, for example, is talking about some kind of glitchy computer program and go, you know, I had a problem like that when I submitted my revision for the New England Journal paper, and so you can kind of bring up that you had a paper that was just accepted in New England Journal, and you can talk about kind of on, a, on an aside all the computer problems you had when you had to upload your document, you know, something that is not as confrontational as that, but something that draws in that accomplishment. It also, if you can use humor or you can do some kind of self-depreciation, um, that um, is also uh, sort of socially acceptable uh, for women because, uh, as, as you alluded, it is a pretty fine line of behavior that is acceptable for women. Men can Express themselves in all kinds of different ways, and nobody thinks too much of it. But women have a fairly narrow kind of range in which to express themselves. But go ahead and uh, give a plug for. No, ki- I have no kickbacks. I get no money from this. But I thought it was a very good, <laughs> good book to uh, you know address this uh, very common problem.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. It's certainly an important book that I think a lot of us will start Googling as we listen to this podcast. Um, and actually, you made me think of another point, that uh, a piece of advice that someone had given me that, to be honest, I hadn't tried, but now I want to ask your advice about it. Someone had told me when I was uh towards the end of my fellowship and just beginning starting my career, that you always want to have an elevator pitch, so to speak, so mm-hmm. that if you run into an important person or a senior or your mentor, or your division chief or somebody in the elevator or anywhere, really, um, you just have a moment of small talk available to you that it's not just about, oh, hey, how you doing? You know, Did you see the Oscars the other night? That it's more that you can use that one-minute or 30-second interaction to really uh, slyly advocate for yourself. Um, is that something that you've used to your advantage? I guess this question is for both of you. Have you guys – has that – something that you've, you've used to your advantage before?
1: I've used it a couple of times, but most of the time I think I've just, uh, as you mentioned, just kind of flailed around for a, a, an opportunity without actually planning. But if you're serious about wanting to get, to have that accomplishment out there, I think that you do need to plan a little bit in advance. So um, I think the elevator pitch idea is is you know, really a very sound one.
2: Absolutely. Having your elevator pitch at the ready is important. And your elevator pitch can change and vary depending on what message that you want to get out and to whom. So if you're highlighting an accomplishment, um, just as Jan alluded to, if you have that manuscript in the New England Journal or you recently received that award, Being prepared to share that information with your superior or your colleagues is really important, and practicing that so that you don't stumble. I'm not very good at that at all, and I oftentimes stumble or become very, very loquacious when I'm trying to extend what I've done in a very positive manner. Um, So practicing an elevator pitch, I think, is a great idea for everyone at all
1: levels of professional development. I think one thing that Abby suggested is a great idea is to um, perhaps tell your superior, tell your division chief, or tell your. But you don't have to actually tell them in person. You can send them a little email that says, Oh, I thought you'd be delighted to hear that that paper I submitted to New England Journal just got accepted. So you're telling your boss because it means something to the division that you know the publications um reflects well on them and um if you have a, a boss that is um congratulates people in public then you don't have to brag they will do it for you they can say at the division meeting we have something to celebrate one of our faculty members has just gotten a paper submitted, let's all congratulate her you know or something like that so um, you can't count on that, but it is something that you can do to make sure that at least your superior knows of what you've done. Yeah, that's a great idea.
0: Because then you're right, if you don't happen to see them or you still, you know, get a little nervous in these person to person interactions, then it may be a great way to just send a quick email, forward the article or forward the acceptance letter and be like, Oh by the way, guess what? I, I think I, I should say for our listeners out there, especially ones that may be intimidated, it doesn't have to be a letter or, excuse me, an or, or article in the New England Journal. I think even if it's an abstract that's accepted or a talk or anything else, that probably would be something that you would equally uh, be excited to share to, to anyone, your division chief, your mentor, or anyone else in your division.
1: It does reflect well on the division. So if you share it with the division chief, it is something that they can then put into their annual report or something else. So you can do it without, you know, being in the bragging kind of mode. You can do it to be supportive of the group.
0: True, because then you're just throwing, you know, this is my two cents. This is what I'm contributing to the division. Um, And it certainly, I would think, wouldn't look like bragging then great, and I'm going to start using these techniques. (laughs) So another question I have for for both of you is uh, something that I alluded to a little bit earlier when I mentioned um, trying to establish a career as a young academician, trying to throw my hat in the ring, so to speak, to do a little bit of scholarly activity, do research, do clinical, do mentoring, um, teaching. Uh, and basically all these things, I think, is what draws people to an academic career is to hope. maybe, at least that's what does it for me, is is to do a little bit of everything and wear multiple hats. Uh, and that's why I find academic medicine fun, but that's also why I find it really stressful. It's this feeling that I'm constantly being pulled in many directions. And, and I remember last year when I first started as an attending, I would say that to my colleagues, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, it doesn't get any easier. It just gets worse as you get older. Like, join the club. And because of that, I find it difficult to advocate for myself, but I also find it difficult to say no when people ask me to take on a new job or a new commitment or teach this course or give that lecture because everything seems so valuable and it's hard to decide what's valuable and what's not when you really want to do everything and get your name out there. How can we as junior women or fellows even or mid-level women say no to taking on additional commitments, especially when we're asked by someone more senior than us, without the fear of appearing lazy or unmotivated? And, and, and sort of as a follow-up to that, how can we manage our time uh, successfully in order to engage in the current obligations that we have and complete all these tasks successfully and do that without spreading ourselves too thin?
2: That's a great question, Dina, and I think what's important for an individual faculty member, particularly someone who's junior, is um, in either academic or in the private world is to recognize that there are certain pathways to move forward into leadership or to ascend the career ladder, if you will. Jan had mentioned earlier in regard to the academic leadership training that that training prepares you to understand what the game is in the sense of in academia, there are promotion matrices that you that faculty can pull down and, and determine which path that they are on and they can utilize that as a framework to decide what commitment is important to their career goal. So, taking charge and really ascending the career ladder on your own terms is critical. So how do you do that when you're constantly being asked to do more and more and you just want to say no because at some point your place is going to run it over? The way to do this is to learn how to say no in a very positive manner. So when provided an opportunity or a commitment, determine if it's going to benefit your career path or your own professional development. Firstly, then secondly, review your current commitments and see if there's anything that you could potentially give up or step down for, or even better, reassign to somebody who's more junior to you that might benefit from um, that commitment or that project. If it's a commitment that you can't decline because it comes from your direct superior, um, it's okay to ask if it's a time-limited project or if there are other resources that are available to help offset your current responsibilities. But also recognize that there may be rare events or rare commitments that you're just going to have to take on. And there will be times where you'll have to balance all your current commitments. But recognizing that you have an individual bandwidth and a professional bandwidth is going to be important. And take regular stops um, along your academic year to determine what you can give up or reassign to others. So that way you can be as productive as you can. Great. Great advice.
0: Jan? Jan?
1: No, I totally agree with Abby. I think that you have to decide, you know, the implications of saying no if it's your boss. It's probably not such a great idea. But if it is, you know, another opportunity and you you can either you want to do it um, later or you don't want to do it at all, um, you can be graceful, you can thank people for that opportunity and then suggest potentially someone else, uh, just like Abby said, who may um that be a great opportunity for them um who um say or would you know maybe fits closer in their expertise or you know are is eager to, to um uh get out there um so it would be a win for them so I think those are all great um things, but you have to uh, figure out whether this is something that you is a high priority or if it's something that you know your boss uh, really needs you to do.
0: Thank you. Just a follow-up question to that. um, For both of you being a little bit more advanced in your career than I am, have you, either of you been on the, I guess I want to say receiving end of that, but maybe it's more the giving end. Have you tried to um, ask someone more junior than you to take on a task, and have they been able to say no in a way that you've been able to respect? Are there any examples that you can that you can give and say, oh, yeah, one time I asked my mentor, my mentee to do this and they really, or, or is, it, is it something that you recognize that maybe this was too much that you were asking that person to do?
1: That's a tough one for me because I often have a good idea of what their, you know, workload and, and you know, kind of call schedule is. Um, so if it looks like this is something they're not going to be able to do, I tend to look for somebody else. Sometimes I'm not sure and sometimes I'll, if I think that it would be a good experience for them, but they think that they're too busy. Sometimes I'll offer to help them. Say, I can give you some re- uh, some references for giving this talk. I can maybe give you a couple of slides from a previous talk I gave that's related. Will that help you? You know, so so sometimes I can, you know, make it a little easier. But if they just can't do it, then I move on and find somebody else who can.
2: I, I love Jan's answer. I don't know if I can if there's really anything more to add to that. I think that recognizing that from a trainee standpoint they have certain responsibilities and they have milestones to achieve and if there is a project that I want either a trainee or one of my admin staff or um a junior faculty member to help um with or to take over what I try to do is sit down with that individual and ask them about what their current responsibilities are to see if it's something that's reasonable and give them the right of first refusal, if you will. But if I feel that it's going to overcome or over, um, overload what their current responsibilities are or may distract them, then it's incumbent upon me to tell them that it's probably not the right. It's not the right time to take on that project, but I appreciate their enthusiasm for volunteering, and I could um, gently give the project, or maybe not so gently give the project to somebody else. The fellows or the trainees um, or staff that have told me know that they weren't able to take on a project. I've always I always like to ask them the reasoning why and if they tell me that they are simply over overloaded with time and projects i appreciate their maturity and their insight in recognizing that for themselves and i like to celebrate that and acknowledge their maturity in recognizing what their own time commitments are
0: and i think that's insightful for both of you i think as mentors to try to think about that and think about what you're asking of whom before you ask someone to take on a task. It seems like you really are considering, Jan, you said even maybe before you even ask someone for something, you're already thinking about whether it's feasible or reasonable for them to to take on this project. So that's really great from coming from a junior person to hear that from both of you. I'm going to switch gears uh, a little bit and move to a slightly different topic that I think will be Again, I think all these topics are helpful for women and when men, but this one might be, might be more important for women. Abby, you have told me in, in prior conversations that you've received formal training in conflict resolution. Can you tell us a little bit about this experience and, and how this has helped your approach to either difficult situations you've encountered or how maybe this may have even influenced your career path?
2: Absolutely um, so besides my training as a fellow in pulmonary and critical care medicine, conflict resolution training has been by far and away the Best experience for me personally. I am um, by no means an expert in conflict resolution, but it has been very informative, very empowering to me. I frequently say that effective communication is the key to any successful relationship, um, that effective communication is not just about listening to the words that somebody else is speaking and vice versa, but it's truly hearing the message that they're trying to um, provide you and incorporating that message into your own framework. So the conflict resolution training that I did was part of a leadership course. I think you're hearing this common thread about leadership courses for both myself and and Jan. Conflict resolution, it was was framed in a similar manner as the Myers-Briggs personality inventory. So it was a series of questions in which you were able to identify what your own conflict personality is. Um, It allowed me the opportunity to truly understand how I respond in situations of conflict, as well as to be able to, um, to a certain degree, understand another individual or other individuals that I might be in conflict with. Now, conflict can certainly be used for um, in a positive manner, but oftentimes it has a negative connotation. And so, going through this course, understanding my personality conflict, it's provided me a very unique skill set that I definitely needed um, as a junior faculty member and has served me very well throughout my career. And I've been able to utilize the skill set to be in meetings in which there was... um, it's a high stake meeting and be able to either mediate the conversation, move a conversation forward, and on a rare occasion, diffuse a very contentious conversation. And because of that unique skill set, I've been asked to serve on um, a multitude of committees that can be fairly challenging or uncomfortable to be in, particularly if there is a wide variety of uh, different individuals who come from uh, different different stakeholders, if you will, um, and they might not have shared experiences. Like I said, I'm still learning. I am not an expert, but it's been incredibly effective and in empowering to me, both personally and professionally.
0: That's great advice. I'll ask you the same question I asked Jan about her senior senior women um, course. Is this something that you decided to do on your own, or did someone bring this up to you and say, hey, you should do this?
2: <laughs> right. So I sought out this particular leadership training here on campus. It was um, sponsored by the Women in Medicine Leadership Group at the University of Colorado, and it was framed in a similar manner um, from the double AMC women in leadership courses that they have for junior career and mid-career. It was recommended by one of the directors of the course, who I know quite well, and it was, she recognized that this is of tremendous benefit to women and it's very empowering, particularly to women in academia.
0: That's great. I wonder if there, do you think or do you know if there are uh,
2: similar courses in other
0: institutions?
2: Yeah, there are. Um, Certainly through the AAMC, the Alliance of Academic Internal Medicine also provides a leadership course. It's an executive leadership course. The American Thoracic Society on occasion has postgraduate courses for leadership training as well. Um, in regard to other individual institutions, there are... I know that a variety of academic, university-based institutions will have specific leadership training courses. They might not be um, a full three-day course or a quarterly course, but they can certainly they will certainly provide um, communication courses, um, conflict resolution, the Myers-Briggs personality courses that are um, that are incorporated into leadership courses. Those tend to be a little bit more um, unique um, and might require a little bit of legwork to determine if there's um, available. Availability at your institution, but most institutions have um, a leadership office that faculty members can reach out to to determine what's available to them at their home institutions. Great, and
0: I encourage everyone to look at their own institution and see what's available, either in the leadership, in the way of leadership courses, or or conflict resolution. Those sound like fantastic ideas. And that concludes this episode of our Women in Critical Care podcast. Thank you again, Jan and Abby, for joining me today. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us next time for episode three, when Jan, Abby, and I will continue to discuss such key issues as treatment at work and family life. Thank you.